We're going to be in Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51. It's got some feedback to it. Skylar, take it down, bub, a little bit. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms, keep taking it down, bring it down. Psalm 51 is one of the few psalms that are pinpointed as to where its historical origin comes from. A lot of the psalms, we don't really know the situation that surrounds it. And we can just use our best guess to kind of understand who maybe the authorship was from and what time period it came from and so forth in Israel's history. But we don't have to guess with Psalm 51. It's the beauty of an actual handed down heading. Here's what the heading says. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. After he had gone into Bathsheba. And we know this story well from 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, verses 2 through 5. But just in case you need your memory jogged, I want to just give a, just a crisp reading of 2 Samuel chapter 11 so you're reminded of the, uh, the biblical account of David's sin. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and that woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. He took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And he tried to cover his sin by then doing what? By bringing home Uriah the Hittite, who, if you understand and read in context the rest of the scriptures, this wasn't just some no-name guy. Uriah the Hittite was a well-known, loyal warrior in David's army. And David should have been out on the front with all the kings when they go out to war in the spring when the snow melts off and it's time to go and move your armies around and do what they did with the Philistines and all that good stuff, right? And he's not. He decided this time he'd earned the right to stay home. He earned the right to enjoy the fruit of his labor a little bit. So he concocts this great plan, right? He's going to bring home Uriah the Hittite, He's going to say, Uriah, you go. You're doing such a great job, Uriah. You go home and be with your wife. He's going to trick him. He's going to make sure the timing is right for that baby to be born. But Uriah, being a noble man, says, I, I can't. I can't possibly go and enjoy the company of my wife while my men are out on the battlefield. And so Uriah the Hittite is more noble than the king himself in this moment. Uriah the Hittite is out, devoted to the cause of God, the cause of putting down God's enemies, and elevating up God's man, which is King David. He's so devoted to that cause and so loyal to it. David's plan fails, and so on to plan B we go. Plan B is even worse. He has Uriah put on the front of the battle 
so that he will be killed. And he's killed, and they bring him home, and they put on a big to-do with the funeral and this noble man who was killed. And then David proceeds to say, well, I will, I'll do the right thing and try to help provide for this poor widow now. Trying to get the timing right on this baby still even yet to cover up his sin. Still lacking repentance, still lacking any sense that he had done anything wrong. Really, he knew he had done something wrong, but at this point, he didn't care. He was in consequence management mode. Consequence management mode, which is not repentance, which is not being really sorry. That's being sorry for the hurt you have caused, not evidently sorry for the action that you have committed. Until one of the most understated sentences in the Bible, 2 Samuel, ends with these words. 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says these things. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This thing that David had done. Notice it doesn't say King David. Mm -mm. This is David David. We're addressing him as a man, not as a king, not as a political figure. The thing that this sinner had done displeased God. And then God in his beautiful mercy sent Nathan the prophet to David. Nathan told him a parable of a rich man who had Many, many sheep in his flocks, yet he wanted the one little beautiful lamb of the poor farmer. And so he took the poor farmer's lamb, and Nathan said to him, what do you think we should do with that wicked man? And David said, we should kill him. He's wicked. And Nathan utters these words to him that rang through David's ears clearly. You are the man. You are the man. You are the man. And he asked him, why have you despised the word of the Lord? This is important. Notice he doesn't say, why have you sinned against Uriah the Hittite? Why have you hurt such and such and such? He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? That's the key thing he's zeroing in on. David's disobedience to God. David finally breaks and confesses. And we don't know exactly. It had to be less than nine months because the baby wasn't quite born yet, right? But there was a period of time here when... The act took place. All that went down with Uriah went down with Uriah. And there was a time of unrepentance where David sat and stewed and concocted and schemed and covered up. And what a beautiful mercy God gives to David through Nathan. Surely there's an obvious point of application here for us even, even now, as we haven't even gotten to Psalm 51 yet. We can't get to Psalm 51 until we understand the full context because we can't understand the, the, the soul-bearing repentance of a man who's broken if we're not yet understood exactly how he got to that point. What a beautiful mercy God gives to David through Nathan. Surely there's an obvious point of application here. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Be careful of the voices that you silence in your life. God uses this brave man named Nathan who fears God more than David. This could have ended very badly for Nathan. Clearly, David was capable of doing anything he wanted to anybody he wanted to do it with, and he had no accountability. He was God's man. We don't have a parallel political figure for what David was. It's hard to even wrap our minds around. He had no accountability which makes his sin all the more heinous, which makes his sin all the more abusive, which heaps up sin on top of sin, that not only did he take this woman, 
He took her and abused his authority in order to get her. And then he abused his authority in order to deal with the problem. And then he abused his authority to continue to try to cover up over and over and over again. And finally, Nathan came, and he decided to stop abusing his authority, and he repented. And now, was Nathan perfect? No. no excuse me. Nathan was a sinner as well, but this doesn't disqualify him from being the very instrument of God to bring David back into the fold. It's one thing to say that you are open to correction, brothers and sisters. It's an entirely other thing, and it's a much more difficult thing to realize it for what it is when it's happening to you. It's a God wrought thing, a God-created thing, when you can realize that the word of the Lord is coming to you and calling for your repentance. Because we all sit here, we do, we, we, like, to, oh, we like to amen the, the idea that I'm open to, you know, of course, you ask somebody if they're open to correction, no one's ever going to say, no, I'm not open to correction. Everybody thinks they're open to correction. But actually being open to correction is a very difficult, God-created moment. And so here's a clear application from you just from this text. When someone comes to you with a humble book, chapter, and verse correction, do not despise him. Do not despise him. Even if after careful prayer and consideration on your part, you feel that this messenger, so to speak, may be misinterpreting the word, honor the effort. Don't despise a brother for coming to you to try to correct you book, chapter, and verse, bearing God's words to you. It's, it would be a scary thing to exist in a community where no one tried to correct each other for fear of one another out of God's word. Honor the inclination. Don't shoot the messenger. Honor the inclination. Despise him not. So continuing on, then Nathan says astonishingly, astonishingly, after he calls him out and David realizes his sin and this begins the process of repentance, Nathan says something astonishing. It's going to help us understand the biblical theology of sin, how, how, it, how it works. Nathan says this, the Lord has put away your sin. So David did all these heinous things. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The Lord has put away your sin. This is outrageous. This is, this is outrageous. We, we, most of us are really familiar with this story, so it's very easy to kind of be numb to what's taking place here. The Lord is turning his face away from murder, from rape. He's turning his face away from consequences of heinous, heinous, heinous sins. The types of sins. Can you imagine? Can you just, just put yourself in the place of Eliam, right? Bathsheba's father. Put yourself, put yourself in his place. Your son-in-law's dead. Your daughter's been raped. She's pregnant with another man's child. I'm gathering the posse if I'm Eliam right now. This is outrageous. How does the Lord put away his sin? And how can God be a righteous judge if this is how he handles it. This is scandalous. How is it possible to have those two things? God as righteous judge and God 
overlooking David's sin. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 through 26. This is one of the most important sentences in the Bible for understanding how Christ relates to the psalm and the Old Testament in general. It says this, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had, what? Passed over former sins. That's exactly what it's the exact same language that 2 Samuel chapter 12 says that God did. He passed over David's sin. It was to show that his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The outrage that we should feel when God seems to simply pass over David's sin would be good outrage if God were simply sweeping David's sin under the rug. God is not sweeping David's sin under the rug. God sees from the time of David down the centuries to the path of his son Jesus Christ who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Jesus. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins. And Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. And God can justly pass over David's sin. The death of the Son of God is outrageous enough and the glory of God is beautiful enough that it upholds this, this propitiation, this wrath satisfaction. Because inside of us, as we, as we have this outrage going on about, oh, what he did was just awful, what he did was just terrible, we may be hurt by that. We might see that, but we fail to understand and appreciate totally what sin is, which we're going to get into in just a second here if we don't realize that the person who the sin was committed against is a thousand times more righteously angry than we could ever be. That little verse I told you that's easily passed over and what David did displeased the Lord is jam-packed full of meaning. And when David finally comes to grips with all of this, we get Psalm 51. David repents. David doesn't just say, yeah, 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 I know, Nathan, I get it. It was a bad thing to do, but what can I do now? God has taken care of it. He's put it away. I know that it displeased God. Eh. Sorry, God, moving on. That's not David's attitude. That's not what we see In Psalm 51, God opens his eyes, and David feels the weight of this statement. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin displeases God. All, therefore, have done what? Displeased God. God, I, I have displeased God. I could put my name in that verse and it would still be accurate. The thing that Pastor Kurt has done displeased and displeases God. 
We could put your name in there. You, what you have done, what you have done. Catch this. What you have done has displeased God on a very specific individual level, the same as King David. You have displeased God. Your sin has displeased God. We don't like that. We don't, we don't, you, don't, you don't normally gather into a place for a pastor to tell you that God's not happy with you. That's not common in our version of Christianity. But I'm here to tell you, you and your life, because of the Scripture, because of the deduction we brought from the Scriptures just now, I know for a fact that you sitting here before me right now, God is not happy with you. We would rather think of God as some big teddy bear that snuggles us in all of our imperfections, that is our cheerleader all the time. We are not ready to appreciate the soul-bearing, sorrowful repentance of King David in Psalm 51 until we purge ourselves of the self-help pseudo-gospel that prizes happiness over holiness. God is not okay with the thing that you have done. He is not okay with that attitude that you have had. God is not okay with that thing that you said that you should not have said. God is displeased with you. G.K. Testerton, uh, I love British preachers, especially old British preachers. Back in the 1800s, they produced some pretty good ones. G.K. Chesterton, there was a... Uh, there was an expose in the London Times, which was the premier English-speaking newspaper at the time. There was an expose at that time that they, they recruited all these famous people to, they asked them this one question, asked them to write an essay on what this, this one question, it was the question was, what do you think is wrong with the world? What do you think is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wasn't initially invited to share his opinion of what was wrong with the world. So he went on reading each week by week, seeing what different actresses and actors and politicians and so forth wrote, what they thought was wrong with the world. And so finally, he, just, he decided he was going to write his essay with the wrong, what was wrong with the world. And he wrote it to them. He said, Dear Sirs, this is, his, this is his essay. Dear Sirs, I am. I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. He got it. He nailed it. What's wrong with the world? Sin. Who has it? You do. And God isn't happy about it. Not one bit. And this, right now, you can't appreciate Psalm 51 until you realize the fact until you realize what King David realized when Nathan came to him. The thing that you have done has displeased the Lord. So let's hear the pleadings now of a repentant man. Just going to do the first 12 verses. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God. 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you hear the desperation in David's voice? Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Do you hear a broken heart? There's five things. There's five things I want to pull out of this psalm. It's almost like we get to see, I always like being the younger brother because I got to watch my older sister make mistakes and then I didn't make those same mistakes quite as bad. So little brothers, they get two things in the 90s. You got Luigi when you played Mario, and you got the advantage of seeing uh, your, your older sibling make mistakes first. Those are the two positive things about being the younger sibling, right? Um, and so we get to see King David almost as our older brother here. We get to see what real repentance looks like, how he understood his sin and what the reaction was from a real repentant person. This is a real, this isn't a fake repentance. This isn't a, this isn't, he's, he's not, he's, he has no reason to fake it. If he wanted to fake it, he would have just killed Nathan. He just kept on managing consequences. But he's broken and he's done. So there's five things I want to pull out. Little, we'll call it little brother wisdom, right? Or older brother wisdom that we as little brothers get to see. First thing he says, First thing David knew about his sin, he knew that his sin deserved destruction. He knew because of his sin, he deserved destruction. Look at, his, look at the first verse. What are his first words? What's he say? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God. According to, or almost, it's very akin, the language there is remember. Remember your steadfast love. Remember when I was doing okay. Remember when I, what I was doing wasn't displeasing you. I need you to remember back to that now, God, and remember me according to your steadfast love, according to the abundant mercy that you have shown me my entire life, God. I need you to remember that right now. That's what he's saying. Blot out my transgressions. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is what? Death. And he knew it. He knew it. Don't destroy me. David's sin, our sin, deserves death. 
this thing that you have done that displeases God. You deserve death for it. Second thing. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. David and we are unable to not sin. We're unable to not sin. We are hopelessly unable to help ourselves out of this mess of sin that we find ourselves in. Left to our own devices, we will go on sinning. This is what we call the doctrine, just a big fancy word of total depravity. Total depravity. It just means you can't do it. You're going to do it wrong. From Listen to what he says. I was brought forth in iniquity, conceived in sin. Third thing. This is an important one. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you. He's talking to God. He's coming before God in a repentant fashion and saying, Against you, God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Nathan had said David despised God and scorned his word. So David says in verse 4, against you and you only. This doesn't mean that Bathsheba and Uriah and the baby weren't hurt. It doesn't mean that the entire kingdom wasn't hurt by the immorality of this man that was supposed to be God's man. What an absolute, what an absolute community betrayal. It doesn't mean that people weren't hurt by David's sin. What it does mean is what makes sin so bad is that it is against God. Hear this and understand it with clarity. You hurt other people. You hurt other people. But you sin by definition against who? God. Only God. Because God wrote the rules. God wrote the law. God gave the command. And if I hurt you by me disobeying, I may hurt you through my disobedience to God because that's how the world is structured because God knows what he's doing. When he created everything, he set up a system by which when you disobey him, people get hurt. That doesn't mean that you sinned against that person. I know we say that a lot. We say you sinned against so-and-so. Even the Bible uses that language. But understand the nature of what sin is. Sin is egregious not because it hurts people. David was totally aware that he had hurt people when he killed Uriah the Hittite. But he was not aware of his sin against God. Sin is, is, is egregious. It is most disgusting and horrible and difficult and wrong, it's most wrong because it's against God himself. Sin is an attack on God. It's a belittling of God. David admits this in striking terms when he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Feeling bad for the hurt that you have caused is called getting caught, and that's not repentance. It may help you get to repentance, but it is not its substitute. 
Repentance is admitting guilt to God and rebellion against God. And this is so important for all of us, especially those people who have been around churchy things their whole life. Hear this very clearly. Feeling bad for the things that you have done because you got caught is not repentance. It's not repentance. It's just feeling bad. It's consequence management. You're living in that time frame between the death of Uriah the Hittite and Nathan the prophet. You don't want to be there. You want to wake up to the fact that your sin is primarily against God, and it's, it's to him that you need to apologize. It's to him that you need to go humble and broken. It's to him. It's to him. It's to him. It's to him. Fourth truth from David, Psalm 51. Only God can cleanse only God can cleanse. Verses 2, 7, 9, and 10. 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Only God can cleanse. These are passive verbs. No part of David is involved in what is being asked for here. He realizes that if there is to be any release from the eternal consequences of what he has done, then God is going to have to be directly involved in the washing, the purging, the hiding of his face, and the creating of a clean heart. He is crying out for God to come and be a part of this, not just be a part of this, to create this to do these things. Hyssop. It's an interesting thought. Anybody grown any hyssop in their garden this summer? Anybody? No hyssop, right? Maybe Scott Norrington because he's into that kind of crazy stuff. But hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that was used, if you read in the Levitical law, it was a plant that was used almost like a paintbrush. Splatter blood on the altar. Or when maybe a house or an object was unclean, these priests would use this hyssop in their cleansing ceremonies. And so David is asking God to play the part of a priest on his behalf. Purge me with hyssop. Purge me with hyssop. Be my high priest, God. Intercede on my behalf. I need you. David knows he needs number five, the fifth thing, so only God can cleanse. Let me give you the four things real quick here. His sin deserves destruction. He's not able to not sin. He hurts others by his sin, but he only sins against God. Only God can cleanse from sin. And then number five, David knows he needs help going forward. David knows he needs help going forward. Verse 11 and 12, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. To me, as I, I read that verse, I can, I can barely read that verse out loud. It scares me, and it scared David. The thought, listen to the words again, cast me not away from your presence. Cast me not away from your presence. This is the man who led the parades. This is the guy who was the prototype for what a worshiper in ancient Israel was to look like. He was God's man. And what was he terrified of? He was terrified of being cast out of all of that. Everything. He realized he deserved everything that he had to be taken away from him. 
He'd realize that not only everything he had to be taken away from him, but the very privilege of being part of the people as the lowliest door-holding guy, he realized he didn't even deserve it. And he begged God, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knows he needs help going forward. And David is asking for supernatural assistance going forward to keep him from sinning again. So you've got this repentant man. He's broken. He's laid bare before God. He's laid his heart out before God. He feels acutely what he needs. Now open your ears and hear what God does about what a repentant man needs. Romans 6.23, the first point was this. Our sin deserves destruction. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Our sin deserves destruction. David knew it acutely, and he said it out loud to God. Have mercy on me, O God. Do not destroy me. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The second thing David knew was he, was, he knew he was unable not to sin. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Sounds like not able to not sin, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you were once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sounds like hopeless, right? Sounds like in sin, my mother conceived me, right? I'm hopelessly not able to not sin. God, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with who? Jesus Christ. third thing that this repentant man needed. He said, you hurt others, but you only sin against God. You hurt others, but you only sin against God. Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he, he being Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Fourth, only God can cleanse this sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he'd entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats, 
The hyssop wasn't splattering the, bo- the blood of bulls and goats this time, but by means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the blood of who? The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Only God can cleanse, and he has cleansed. Number five, David knows that he needs supernatural help going forward. This repentant man needs supernatural help going forward because he knows he's going to sin again if he's left to his own devices. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells within you and he will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do you see? Do you see that Jesus is everything that a repentant man could ever need? He is everything. A humble and contrite heart, he will not turn away. He has been everything that a repentant man could ever need. The Bible has a refrain continuously. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. We're broken and we believe. We're broken and we believe. We're broken and we believe. We see the need for a Savior, and the Savior shows up. And this happens over and over and over and over again in the life of a believer. I wrote a poem a while back. It's called The Beggar. I want to read it to you. Jonathan Cruz, he, wrote, he illustrated it for me. It's hanging in my office. You might go in there one time and look at the illustration. It's pretty neat. It says this, Dirty, hungry, cold, huddled down in me to state, claimed for himself. Mine, he snaps at passerby, staked out with foolish pride this little square of alleyway. What madness is this, this little man, convinced that all provision lay within dumpster, pan, and cobblestone filth. A light shines through window pane, mesmerizes, his eyes widen, he looks down and now realizes how foolish I have been in vain, starving, dying, when the king's house lay right there, plain. Many times the king spoke kind to this beggar man. Come, he said, see, wait for me, and there shall be a feast. I'll call you son, and you will meet. Oh, yeah, the beggar smirked. What makes you think I want your peace? I want your grace. Now leave. You trespass in my place, in my space. But now... Why had he not seen it before? Will I sit and toil in mud and grime, the Lord's house right there, and what's more is I'm starving. Surely on a road to death, without the king, I won't last one more breath. I'll throw myself in his way, and I'll lay on his steps how I need him, how I long for any morsel or kind word. 
At his mercy, tis far better than dirty, cold, and spurned. The beggar now, still pathetic but with hope, lays on king's step and soaks in warmth of glowing window. No longer snapping at passerby, but inviting others to wait by his side for the king to open the door and usher him into banquet feast. He smells the aromas of new wine and warm bread, his eyes wide with faith and hope in what's to come. Never again to leave for the slum, he thought was everything. Never again to leave for the slum he thought was everything. He sits, waits, smiles on castle step. Still in mean estate, but now with purpose, for he awaits adoption. <coughs> I believe I'm done. <laughs> so I'll say this. Brothers and sisters, may your sin be ever more bitter and Christ be ever more sweet. Amen.